and welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, your host, and my favorite guest is back. He is Jason Cochran. He is the editor-in-chief of Fromers.com, and we've we've both been uh, traveling this week, right, Jason? Welcome back. Thank you. I poured my cup of coffee, and I'm ready to talk about all the things we've done. I think this is the first time since we came off radio and just started doing the podcast where we get to talk about international travel, (laughs) but that we have done, not that our guests have done. Because uh, for me, this was my very first trip abroad post-pandemic. I flew uh, first to France and then to the UK. And I got to say, it just felt so good. I I hadn't realized how trapped I felt. You know, I mean... This I hope this doesn't sound snotty, but I've been traveling since I was four months old. I started traveling with my guidebook writing parents uh, when I was still in diapers. And so I had never spent as much time in the U.S. <laughs> as I have in the last two and a half years. And obviously, it, we have a wonderful country. There's lots to see and do. But boy, oh boy, is it nice to go somewhere outside <laughs> to, yeah, to get out. It really is. It, it really breaks your perspective up, which we all need. We all need to do no matter what you're into. It's nice yeah. to have something that breaks your perspective up. Yeah. And, and my first uh, day abroad was in Paris. Oh. And, you know, it, my father always says when he's asked what his favorite place in the world is, I have a coy answer to that question. I always say it's the last place I've been that I prefer to go to new places. But he always says without hesitation, Paris. And I, I may adopt his answer soon. You you just are walking around that city and you you, you go around a corner and suddenly in front of you, there's a magnificent building. Uh, I, I saw the BNP uh, Bank headquarters, mm-hmm. which is set in a former church. It's not uh, in our guidebooks. It's not in any guidebooks, but it stopped me in my tracks. It was so beautiful with this exquisite sculpture of a of a very stern-looking woman gazing down at you and uh, I went. I wandered into the lobby, even though this wasn't a you know a tourist site, and the lobby's ceiling was all stained glass, soaring columns. You know, it just it that's just how Paris is. That's the non-tourist stuff. And then when you you go to the tourist stuff, uh, yeah, it's almost always better. I actually decided to go to a museum I'd never been to before uh, because it's new. I went to the new. Yves Saint Laurent Museum. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's in a mansion. And in one way, it's terrific. And in another way, it's a total failure. It's terrific in that they got everybody in Yves Saint Laurent's life to talk about his artistic process and to really break down how one of his fabulous gowns were made and what his inspirations were and how important buttons were and accessories and this and that and this and that. And so you get, you get all of this insight into his artistic process, but they don't display one single gown. Interesting. wonder why that is. Yeah. 
it's it's all it's all just videos pretty much and they have you know lots of buttons and lots of uh, pieces of fabric and you can walk into his former workshop but i wonder i don't know why it, it was astonishing to me i wanted to see one of those dresses in person after learning about how they did it i wanted to be able to wander up to it and see if i really couldn't see the seams and you know and and see in person what i had learned about and like they don't a music, do it. museum to beethoven they're never playing any of his music yeah, it was really, really strange. Um, so that that was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, but well, I have a than, big question though. Before I, yeah, I think a lot of people are wondering too. People who haven't left the country yet, yes. what is it like? You know, broadly speaking, like right now out there. Right. Well, I had to fill in more forms than I expected. And coming back, I flew back through Heathrow and I purposefully made my flight for 4 p.m. because I thought, oh, I'll have a really nice morning in London. I'll hit a museum, have a great quick lunch and then head to the airport. But then I got an uh, email from my airline saying you must show up at the airport four hours in advance. Yeah. Was that necessary, you think? Or were they just being conservative? Well, I got to the airport three hours and 50 minutes in advance. Thanks partially to your help, Jason. You you walked me through exactly which trains I should take, and it, it was very speedy. Yes, I write our London guide for people who don't yes. know. I'm, I don't have a crystal ball yet. <laughs> right. And uh, so I was nervous. I was 10 minutes later than I was supposed to be. It only took me 45 minutes to get to my gate, though. So I sat in the airport for a couple of hours, yeah, which was a, about right. a bit of a bummer. Okay, but it's better so, than the and alternative. Then, it's better than well, time. Yes. And my plane was late because there was a traffic jam within the airport. The little truck that was supposed to cater the plane couldn't actually get to the plane. I had a similar thing. It was catering that held up my flight to France. From the U.S. Yeah, so, there's so you know, many I mean, things that are going wrong right now. You just never know what will cost something. Yeah, and there were more forms to fill out before my flight. That was the only, but nothing difficult. What's the attitude like on the streets of Paris? One of the things that we've been writing about at Fromers is how the city has changed so much during the pandemic in terms of how many people are on bicycles now. Did you oh, notice yes. that? I did actually, yes, and they have, and not only on the streets. Many of the sidewalks now have bike lanes on them, and so you're, you're strolling, and suddenly somebody just whips past you really fast. Uh, so you you have to keep your wits about you. But for cyclists, and I'm a cyclist in New York City, it's great how um, what's the word protected the bike lanes are. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I considered actually renting a bike. They have little stands where you can rent them for half an hour or so to get from point A to point B. And I considered doing it because it, it really didn't feel dangerous. It, it felt like a great way to get around. And you didn't do it? So, next no, time. I, uh, next time, next time I was carrying something that didn't really lend itself to biking. Yeah, it was an eclair or I hope it was a pastry. <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, so yeah, so that was amazing. And then I went to the city of Dijon 
in the region of Burgundy for a couple of days, and I'll be writing this up for Fromers. And so in talking to you, Jason, I'm I'm kind of practicing what I'm going to say in the article, I think. (laughs) What Dijon reminded me of, I don't know if you had this, but in my high school, there were certain girls and, and guys too, who just seemed like they had a golden halo around them. They, they were popular, they were confident when the rest of us were miserably self-conscious. Uh, they were really good at either sports or theater. Or, they had a skill that was widely celebrated. And then they graduated and everybody thought, oh, I wonder what they'll be up to in the rest of their lives. And now we know they peaked in high school. Uh, and I kind of feel like Dijon is like that as a city. It peaked in the 15th century. And that's what makes it so incredible to visit today. Uh, because Dijon was the uh, basically the palatial house of the uh, lords or the dukes of Burgundy. And in the 15th century, the dukes of Burgundy didn't just own Burgundy. They owned land all the way through the lowlands, through through today's uh, Belgium and the Netherlands. So they were big, big deals. Eventually what happened was uh, they had a duke who had the misfortune not to have any sons. He only had a daughter. So she married the Holy Roman Emperor and it all got dispersed pretty much. Uh, but because it had it was so important in the 15th century, you really get to see what life on a royal scale was like at that time. Uh, and you also see all of these really beautiful examples of different types of architecture. There are half-timbered houses there of the type that Shakespeare would have lived in. You know, those houses mm-hmm. where you can kind of see the beams and you see the plaster around them. And there's a couple of gorgeous uh, Belle Epoque houses, uh, but then most of the stuff is from the 15th century, and it's absolutely exquisite. Now, one of the one of the reasons Burgundy is still important today is both because of mustard, <laughs> Dijon, sure. and wine, and the methods or the classifications that were put into place by the Dukes of Burgundy way back in the 15th century still rule the roost today. There's something called terroir which has to do with the plot of land on which the grapes are grown. And sometimes these plots are are as little as 10 feet long and 8 feet wide. Uh, And they have different classifications. The most expensive ones or the most um, coveted ones are Premier Cru. And it, it has to do with when the soil is very rocky, and this is an area that the last ice age created really interesting striations with limestone and the like, when the soil is really rocky, the roots have to go very, very deep to get water. And that depth, they say, lends more complexity to the grapes. So the grapes that are grown on a slope in really, really rocky soil are the most, are considered the best. 
Um, and the two types of grapes that are grown here are Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. In fact, the most expensive Chardonnays are grown outside of the town of Bonn. Uh, but but you go, I, so I spent one day wandering around Dijon, seeing its exquisite uh, fine arts museum, m- much of which w- w- one of the first museums uh, open to the public on the planet, probably considered like one of the top five museums in France. And the original collection came from the Dukes of mm. Burgundy. So you see some really extraordinary things there, things you wouldn't expect in a secondary city like Dijon. Um, and then I spent another day I was going to take one of those bike tours through the vineyards, but I'm such a a last minute planner. They were all sold out. So I went to a bike store to get this guy's advice. And he said, ah, you can do it yourself. Just go here, go here, go here, and go here. Because the thing about Burgundy is, unlike, say, the Napa Valley, not every winery is open to tourists. A lot of them just just do wine. They don't want to be in the tourism business. You you have to call in advance. So I called. It took me 10 minutes. I called four wineries. I got permission to go to them all. The guy at the store told me my best friend owns a restaurant along the way. Get a reservation there. It was my best meal in France. It was extraordinary. A Michelin-starred place. Uh, and I did it on my own. I just used Google Maps and and uh, biked it, uh, you know, I biked 23 kilometers, stopped at four wineries, so it was a lot of tipsy biking, <laughs> and I I, uh, I didn't damage myself until I was on the street where the bike shop was to return the bike, and I hit a cobblestone and fell in the middle of the street <laughs> and s- smashed up my knee, but other than that... It was a great day, and I probably spent half as much as people on bike tours did doing exactly what they did, just on my own. It was so easy. There's only really one road in that area. It's called the the Route of Grand Cru, uh, and it leads to all the wineries. So it was it was easy peasy, uh, but a lot of people, I think, don't trust themselves that they'd be able to do it on their own. Is that why it was sold out? Or is it, is it a COVID thing why it was sold out? Did you find lots of things being sold out for any reason? I think it was sold out because because everybody's there. It, yeah. uh, the, the, interestingly, Dijon doesn't, people in Dijon don't speak much English, uh, which surprised me. It was one of the few places in Europe that I've gone to where English isn't easy to find. Um, so I, I talked to somebody at the, one of the wineries, a, a young woman who is half American, half French. And, and she said, yes, no, no, they, they're too, uh, well, I, I don't want to say stuck up, but which is what she said, but, but they, they believe too much in their own. Yes. They're too traditional. They don't want to, you know, learn English. Uh, so that was interesting. And then I spent one day in Bonn which is another beautiful medieval city that has this extraordinary hospital in it, which was founded, uh, wow, in the 1200s by one of the, uh, he was a lawyer for one of the Dukes of Burgundy, and he wanted to do good works. And so he created this hospital for the poor, but basically anybody could go there and it's gorgeous. Uh, f- and, and you also learn about 
how they treated people until the 1980s at this place. They still have a hospital. Now what keeps the hospital afloat is they owned wineries, they owned grapevines, and they're getting so much money from those that they keep the hospital running. But really, this was the medieval version of socialized medicine available in France for nearly a thousand years. And they had nuns who were the nurses and they had, you know, they had uh, in the middle ages, they had some pretty wacky ideas about how to treat people. Uh, But people didn't have to go bankrupt. People could go in and out of the hospital. And it was the the church sort of administered it back then, right? Well, actually it was uh, the nuns uh, were the the -the on-the-ground troops taking care of the patients, but it it had a secular administration. The the Duke set up a secular line of succession for for uh, non-Catholic folks, or not, well, I'm sure they were Catholic, but non-clergy to oversee. Now, Ron and Dijon and Paris, are they easy to reach between the three of them if you go on your own? Yes, High speed train. Yeah, yeah. Although uh, the the high speed train was sold out when I tried to come back. So I had to take the three hour train rather than the hour and 20 minute long train, which was fine. Yeah, Uh, still a pleasure. It's still a pleasure. Yeah. So easy to get around, very friendly, some extraordinary food, amazing wines. And oh, and the one other thing in. Uh, Dijon that is so much fun is they are home to the city of gastronomy, which is a museum to food because this that's where their hearts are to food and wine. In fact, they have a decommissioned church where they have the big wine display, which I think shows how highly <laughs> they prize wine uh, in this part of the world. Uh, but really fascinating little shops you could go to at the city of gastronomy and test kitchens and displays all about food. Uh, for foodies, this place was was a paradise. So Sounds really great. I've never been to Dijon and now you've made it seem like I really need to go next. Well I'm gonna I'm gonna write about it for Fromers.com so you'll be able to I'm sure you'll be editing it, Jason. And yeah, the rest of be. you, you those who listen will be able to uh, see some photos and learn why why it's the place to go to. Actually, you know, and, and it's interesting. I, the only bad thing I did in Dijon was I took a mustard making class, which was really stupid. It was, it was done through the tourist office and it was clearly just for tourists. And we spent a lot of time pounding mustard seeds. Interestingly, there's a shortage of mustard in, in France uh, it's a it's a big problem <laughs> for them, and most of the seeds now come from Canada. Uh, but you pound that away, must you be pound very away. humbling for the French. <laughs> yes, you so you pound away, and then you mix it with vinegar, and you mix in other things, and then you taste it. And the mustard I made was inedible. It was probably one of the worst things I've ever put in my mouth. But that's all right. It was you know an hour spent in the company of other tourists. So don't do the mustard tour. So it doesn't cut the mustard, to that tour. Okay. Yeah. And you, you also have been traveling on one of, on a cutting edge new ship. Tell us about that. Yeah. Disney Cruise Line, which is one of the more upscale slash premium family lines. The prices are a little bit higher than your Royal Caribbeans or your, certainly your carnivals. Um, has launched a brand new cruise ship, and it's the first one for about 11 years. It hasn't put out mm-hmm. a brand new ship, maybe 10 years. 
It's called the Disney Wish. And I was among the very first people to sail on it last week um, out of Port Canaveral, where it will be home ported. And it's a big, beautiful ship. You know, um, Disney's having some interesting times uh, yeah, financially. Yeah. And, you know, the stock price is going down. And so it's, it's and this, of course, was planned many years ago because it takes many years to finish a ship. Sure. So uh, it was interesting to see what the what they're doing and what they're heading toward in the future. But it's a very beautiful. Lot, everything is like a set piece, you know. They, the, uh, the the every room has a little story to it. This one's like a Louisiana Bayou, so there's plant like plants hanging from the ceiling everywhere. And this one's like Rapunzel's art studio, so it's all in in bright schoolyard colors with little creatures on the walls. Um, so there's everywhere you go, there's something beautiful to look at because the whole goal, of course, for the Disney Cruise Line is to try to bring families together. Um, what people don't expect, I think, on the cruise line is there's a lot for adults to do. They, they hmm. The kids club on the Disney Cruise Line are ginormous. It's wow. It probably is half one of the decks, like or maybe a third of deck two. Huh. And there there's one room that's just – it's done like the Avengers. It looks like a set for the Avengers with a – you know, superhero costumes and cases and every set, every now and then Black Panther will come and meet the kids. There's one room that looks like a, like a warehouse in a Star Wars galaxy. And it's full of little animals in, 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 in uh, glass cases. And we weren't, we didn't go through the things that the kids do, but they're, they're somehow the kids play with the animals somehow and categorize oh. them. And there's a little story that happens in this. It looks like the movie set. It's absolutely Wait, so- beautifully detailed. So these are different than what you found on the earlier Disney cruise ships. Yeah, the ships. other ships don't have any of these things. Wow. Uh, you know, there's one room that's just for kids if they want to be a Disney Imagineer one day and tell, it teaches them how to brainstorm. And the, this is all hmm. in one kids club. I mean, you, the kids could go in this warren of all these different rooms and never come out again and be perfectly happy. Uh, and wow. then the adults, of course, would be drinking, I guess, upstairs. Because there's no casino <laughs> no, wait, on a Disney cruise line, the- so they use it for the kids clubs. Right. Now, before you leave the kids club... You say the kids can be happy, but kids of different ages have different, you know, interests. Right. Uh, was this best for one certain age group or was well, there something for each three, age group? They have three categories of kids clubs. And the reason I know this works is because on this trip, I brought my 13-year-old nephew with me. I figured what a great wow. target audience to see yeah. how this really stacks up, not some grown-up saying what they think. Uh, so there's the Oceaneer Club, which is the big giant one, and that's from like ages three up to I think twelve. There's also a nursery, but we won't count that. That's where you drop off the little ones. Uh, there's also one for kids, I think around uh, I want to say like ten to twelve ish, called mm. Edge. And there's one for kids uh, fourteen and up, or uh, yes, called Vibe. Now my nephew's thirteen, but he's an older thirteen, so he walked into Vibe oh. and he wanted to be in there because that's where the espresso machine was. <laughs> and they let him because he, he clearly wow. looked like he belonged. And he, right. that was his favorite space. It's like a, a the older kids get like loft-like rooms up on top deck. So they have great ocean views and, you know, video games and sports tables and espresso machines. And it looks like, you know, the friends from the TV series have sort of just moved out. And now the kids have moved in. It looks, it's colorful and bright. <laughs> Um, and he loved it. He absolutely loved vibe. He wanted. Were there to other kids there. on board the ship? Who a few. It was with? a press preview, sure. so there are a lot of influencers, you know, and uh, some some press and some right. kids, but so not as many. And they would they would have open houses so that the press could come see. So it wasn't on full operation. Right. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, there's a lot of things that they're hyping Disney uh, with these this ship, and one of them is a Star Wars themed bar for the adults that's separate from the mm. one I just named for the kids. 
And it's, I thought it was sort of flat. The, the decor was, there was not much of it. The drinks were mm. not very, you know, amazing. If, if you've ever had some sort of specialty cocktail where they blow smoke on top of it, I mean, we've all right. seen this before sure. at this yeah. point. And, um, you know, That's there's so a window. interesting because they, they, it seems like they're, they're bombing on all their store, Star Wars stuff. They, they well, just can't I, I think grab that, that some diehard die Star Wars fans, and this is, you know, if we were an entertainment podcast, we could get into it. Some star diehard die Star Wars fans agree with you and think they're just milking it to death and they aren't really honoring the story of the series huh. as much as they could, that they're just now making a buck, you know, with all, some of the things they're doing. And that might be the case with the Hyperspace Lounge. It just, you know, it was over, and they 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 put it forward this five thousand dollar drink you could buy, which I never saw hiding care of, and no one will order. It's just for right. media, it's for hype, you know. Sure. And, and it was hard to get in, and there weren't enough seats, and I was just surprised that you know they they would fumble it like it, it wasn't as beautiful as the space the kids had that first Star Wars. It was wow. immaculate, and it was just you know it was interesting. And this, they have a ride on top. It's a it's a water slide like they often have on Disney Cruise Line. Where you'll get a raft and it'll go up and down slopes because it'll be pushed by water jets when it needs to go up. And it's lots oh. of fun. On the other ships, the older ships, two of them is called the Aqua Duck. This time they called it the Aqua Mouse. And they put some hmm. TV uh, video screens. You can watch a little like a, a custom-made Mickey and Minnie cartoon while you're going up the lift hill. And it just, it's mostly the lift hill. You're sitting in that tunnel watching these cartoons for about two minutes and the ride's over in like 40 seconds. It was it was an hmm. overrated experience, but yeah. the ship itself is beautiful. And one of the one things I really like about Disney Cruise Line uh, compared to the other cruise lines when you have kids is you uh, you eat at a different place every night, and they have lots of themed restaurants that I go into on uh, Fromers I explain all of what's on the ship, different themed restaurants. But the the wait staff, four or five people, follow you every, wherever you, you go, they go. And so, so, you, know, so you, you make it sound like it's, it, you're, you're being followed, like it's a spy no, movie. At night. You, Every time you show up at, at night for dinner, there's your waiter. Hi, Jonathan. There's right. the person who does your water. Hi, Kat. You know, Jonathan was from Philippines. Kat was from Peru. Two of our servers were from Grenada. So, so we got to know them and the places yeah, that they live. And, and it, they weren't just replaceable servants as they are. Uh, sometimes on these other cruise lines where they're not encouraged to share of themselves. So I thought that's a really great touch for kids who haven't yet learned to travel, but you want them to see other people as human beings uh, around the world. I think it's a, it's a great feature. And they, plus they learn he doesn't like salt. He likes a Coke. You know, they understand, they, uh-huh. they learn what you sure, like. Sure, so you don't sure. have to go through it every day. Now I remember one of the innovations of the original D- Disney ships was that the interior cabins, which are the cheap cabins, they don't have windows usually. They put in uh, fake portholes, and they had videos running. Yep. Uh, do it's they do that video. in this it's one an actual too? Actual camera outside the ship, so you see what they. If you had a window, what you would still be seeing. Huh. Wow, it's really cool. They still have those. There's only about 120 or so inside cabins on this ship, and. Funnily enough, you'd, you'd think that no one would want an inside cabin. On the Disney Cruise Lines, they go first because, hmm. A, they're more, they're more affordable and it's an expensive sure. product. But, B, that's fun. Every now and then, yeah. Tinkerbell will fly into your view and then fly out again. And <laughs> so people, that, those go first. So, you, you know, on, on other cruise ships, they might be the last to go because they're down near the laundry room or something. But, Plus, but it's more stable, I've, I've heard, the interior oh, cabins, if, you, if you're prone I mean, to yeah. seasickness. Yeah, because it's in the middle of the axis that the ship would be turning on. So you're, you move the least, especially if you're in the middle of the ship and, in the, you know, uh, from stem to stern, the, the, you know, the midship, it's even better because everything sort of pivots around that point. 
Yeah. Wow. And so it's better big, too, I think. So what, the what was the what was the takeaway from this trip? Is it worth the money? And and how much can you tell us how much is an average cruise on this new ship going to be for a family of four? Well, I've got that listed in uh, the article on the Disney the Wish okay. that's on formers.com. And it, it does vary depending up obviously if you want a balcony or you don't want a balcony. But sure. you know, two or three nights uh, will be about two thousand dollars for two people. So wow. you double that for a family of four. And the family mm. of four can't fit in one cabin, so it won't be much more than that. It'll be add the extra person rather than doubling that. Um, well, the so nice thing is you, you don't have as many extra costs, though, as you might on other ships because you don't no. pay extra for the specialty restaurants. No. Uh, a couple, they have a couple specialty restaurants for grown-ups, like a steakhouse, but you don't have to go to them. And the, the, the basic restaurants you go to are plenty fun. And, yes, you get a lot more for your money in what entertainment that you get at the restaurants. And they have great shows, too. Boy, are they uh, – you know, they get some of the best young talent, like, like Goosebumps voices. Huh. Singing, of course, wow. they're singing the same Disney songs you've heard a million times. Kids love that, uh, but they're really, really talented performers on mm. Disney Cruise Lines. Too. I think, frankly, I think this is just another Disney Cruise ship. I don't think it's the end all and be all, even though it's a new class, even though a, a ship that they're going to start building, and even though they have these extra things. I think you can get one of the less expensive Disney Cruise ships and be perfectly happy because the, uh-huh. the experience is in very many ways essentially the same. Except for that damn kids club. That sounds amazing. I yeah, think this maybe is the somebody most 10 year old, they might pick this ship. And the, 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 there's even a slide that goes down from the main entry hall. You can ride the slide down to the kids club. Uh, and all the grownups wanted to do it too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad product. There's some things they need to work out. I can, you can see where there's, that adults can see where they're cutting corners a little bit to get the hype machine going. Um, hmm. But I think kids are, are, will have a different point of view because they won't see that Hyperspace Lounge, the adult bar, isn't as themed as the kids' area. They'll just see the, the, the kids' area, so they'll be happy. Sure, sure. Very interesting. Yeah, and it's a great article. As we said, it's on Fromers.com. It's a long another, article. <laughs> another article I will be reading is, I mean, the raison d'etre for my trip, uh, even though I just spoke French, was actually not France originally. I was invited to go to the Rolls-Royce factory to learn about sustainable aviation, which sounds like a, a uh, impossibility. It sounds like something that, that doesn't exist. But it, I spent a fascinating day and a half touring around their factory. For those who don't know much about Rolls-Royce, they no longer make cars they haven't since the 1980s. They're all about engines now. Uh, in fact, they were responsible for the engines in World War II fighters, like the Spitfire plane. I saw those. They were amazing looking. Um, they're responsible for the engines in 52% of the commercial wide-bodied planes that are flying today. Uh, in fact, a Rolls-Royce engine, I was told, takes off every 20 seconds <laughs> somewhere in the world. And it, it was, I got to say, I i um, i thought I, I went into it a little cynical after speaking with the engineers and the executives and all of the folks who are 
taking very seriously the problems the world is having right now, the, 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 the problems we're having with climate change, with the need for sustainable products. Uh, they are really putting the brain power of some incredibly brainy folks towards solving some of those problems. Some of what I saw is embargoed. I'm not allowed to write about it or at least not publish it until January 19th. July so 19th. come to yeah. July 19th, right? Don't go away so too, come, too long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So come to fromers.com after July 19th and you'll be able to see my uh, piece about uh, two of the innovations that they're working on that are really exciting. But even in the things that we could discuss, boy, oh boy, I left feeling very hopeful. You know, it's been an interesting thing being a travel writer these last couple of years because, you know, I've always felt like travel is a way to make the world a smaller and more friendly place, that it was the way to stop wars between people. It was a way to build harmony. Uh, throughout the world. But it's also been a terrible force in terms of the environment. When you fly, you're adding a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. And right now, that's not a good thing to do. But interestingly, aviation is about to get more sustainable. And it's already getting more sustainable. One of the first places that they took us was the turbine factory, where we saw these engine parts being made and learned about the science behind these engine parts. An engine in a plane has such stress and such and moves so fast that the heat it creates is half the temperature of the surface of the sun. Whoa, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. And so in order for the parts in an engine to last, they have to be made in a very particular way. About 20 years ago, engine parts had to be replaced about every 150 hours of flying because they would simply start to melt. They would simply burn out. The heat was so intense. But... um, uh, so, so when you think about metals, the current uh, turbines are being made out of composite metals, and they're being made in a very specific AI-generated way. And let me let me take a step back and just talk about the physics of this. Think about building a sandcastle. You put all of the sand together, and it gets stronger. You're able to build walls with grains of sand, but you can still knock it over pretty easily. In a regular metal, a regular metal is kind of like all of those grains of sand put together. What Rolls-Royce is doing is they are creating crystals of metal. They are able to use the forces of heat and pressure so that when they pour in this composite of, lo- of melten- molten metals, it becomes one single crystal. So it's not made up of hundreds of little particles. It becomes, it melds into one particle. Uh, this is just in the last couple of years. That means it's a more sustainable uh, engine because they're not going to have to go back to the mines to you know, dig out more metals as much as they used to. These 
engine parts, instead of having to be replaced every hundred hours or so, last for two to four years. Mm. And even though an engine apparently has, so I think it was 35,000 parts, <laughs> each part now has a QR code on it, which is linked to uh, Rolls-Royce's massive uh, data collecting uh, systems. And there are now little tiny, uh, what are they called? Cameras inside the engine so they can see exactly when a part may be going bad. And so they can go in and just fix that tiny part instead of having to wait for the plane not to take off. Um, and that too, uh, helps sustainability. Uh, as well, they're working on what is called SAF, which is a sustainable aviation fuel. This is fuel made of maybe old cooking oils. And believe it or not, you can, you can have a plane take off on that. Now, there are some problems with that. A lot of the SAF has been made from palm oil. If you know anything about palm oil, that's not good because that means that those are being grown in the Amazon forest and there's deforestation happening as well. Some sustainable uh, aviation fuels are being made out of substances that could be going to feed human beings. So, you know, that also is a tricky wicket or a sticky wicket, I should say. Um, so they think that SAF is part of the solution and the new engines they're building and some of the new innovations I saw but can't talk about yet, they're going to be able to run on SAF from day one once they're introduced. So they won't need to have petrol. They won't need to have uh, carbon spewing fuels. And, and these these fuels are much much better for the environment. But they're also working for they're also working on electric planes. I got to see the fastest electric vehicle on Earth. It's it's broken five world records. This tiny one seater plane, uh, and those two will be coming online. Mostly though for regional hops, because right now there still isn't the science to create a battery that will be able to last, you know, uh, 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 as long as a transatlantic flight would. Um, they're getting there, they're working on it, but there's, there's going to be a mix. And then there's one more fuel that I can't talk about that they're also experimenting with that will be very sustainable. Um, so it was an eye opening, uh, two days, um, really, really impressive of the work that they're Undertaking uh, uh, the Rolls Royce of of uh, aviation at well, I Rolls can't wait Royce. To read this article. <laughs> it's like you saw, like, like the Top Gear of air travel. Like talking about all these things that they're doing. It's fantastic. If only we could put them on how to handle our baggage. Yes. Well, and the nice thing was uh, every innovation I saw, except for the last one, the the new type of fuel, which you'll hear about on January nineteenth. They all expect to come in in the next couple of years. So we're not talking about the distant future. These innovations are happening now. In fact, there are planes that are on uh, going out on combined, you know, petrol and SAF fuel. They're they're flying right now. 
So um, I thought I just thought it was an overload of very good of good news. What does it mean um, for our, our pocketbooks? I mean, there's a lot of R and D that goes into this. Is this going to raise the yeah. cost of flying in the short term, or is it already, is already well, factored in? Will it raise the cost of flying? SAFs, sustainable uh, aviation fuels, are more expensive right now, and there isn't the supply chain for them. So they're also lobbying with governments around the world, because for these types of innovations to actually work, you have to be able to get the fuel, the new types of fuel to the airports. You have to have charging stations for electric planes. You have to have all of this infrastructure in place. And they said quite, quite, um, honestly, that that has to be done with government. Sure. Uh, you know, they're actually working a lot with Norway. Norway's government is very forward thinking about this and um and they are putting into place in their airports a lot of the infrastructures which will probably be copied by the rest of the world eventually. Well, we'll have so, to wait and see. It sounds exciting. Yeah, it, no, it was really exciting. It was really great. So on that happy note, um Jason, did I get to everything you wanted to discuss? There's always going to be more to discuss. It's okay. an unanswerable question. I think All right. Terrific. Well, we'll say goodbye for this, this week. And uh, thank you, Jason, for joining me. It's a pleasure. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. And to those of you who are traveling, well, bless you. It's the best thing you could be doing. And may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.